Welcome to the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I'm Andrew Whaley. Uh, this is episode number 28. I think, yeah. 28. 28. It's been a while. Uh, on sleep. Sleep. We've been asleep since the last episode. <laughs> Our podcast has been sleeping. Since. Well, uh, that might, might or might not be true, but we do sleep every day. We do. Which is well, kind of... most one, days. Well, it's one of the strangest things about being alive. Sleeping. It is. Because it's really. sleeping is almost like being dead. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Um I yeah, it's 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 funny. I'm thinking of that old um that that old REM line about sleep invades my life. Get up, get up. There's that song. And it's like, yeah, it's like we I love sleep, but part of me is like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if we didn't have to do this? Right. People have experimented with this. Right. Right, with trying to stay up for inordinate amounts of time. I mean, they use it for torture. Like, sleep deprivation is torture method. You know, it's like... <laughs> okay, so we can start a conversation about sleep by talking about sleep deprivation. Okay, so people often deprive themselves of sleep on purpose in order to accomplish some sort of task, right? Or to achieve some kind of like... Um, like, say, to finish a paper right. by staying up all night or to take care of a baby who might be crying by staying up all But night. then there's other people in history who have tried to evaded sleep for the sake of the mental state you get in like it's almost like doing a drug or something like they can write or something they can they can they write differently or they can write poetry or they they just stay up for crazy amounts of time yeah it's like like the same way you know it's like um well there's also insomnia right where people right right want to sleep but can't which i've had and narcolepsy which is the opposite yeah, it's like, so insomnia has been kind of a part of my life. I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, I've had trouble. I have a sleep. I I have sleep apnea, well, so it, I have a sleep disorder. It also could be part of the, I mean, part of the consequences of being a coffee shop guy. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do. But you, yeah, I do definitely drink enough coffee to kill a normal man most days. But not really, not as much as you would think. But um, but even when I don't drink coffee, sometimes I. Okay. Uh, All right. So uh, so why do we need sleep? Okay, but wait, before we go to that, speaking of insomnia, I've been a little sick. I'm not that sick, but just kind of like I feel something coming on. So one way I fight that is with sleep. And so one of my favorite sleeps is the NyQuil coma sleep. Like when you just take a big fat shot of NyQuil right before you go to bed. I sleep, I sleep so sound when I take NyQuil. I don't feel as rested all the time, but man, I sleep like the dead when I take NyQuil. So. See, my corollary would be uh, sleeping somewhere far away from the city hmm. where there's no ambient light. I love no. that. That's something we could talk about. No about blacking lamps, out your Blacking out you know, your... No LEDs, none of that stuff. They say the paleo movement, one of the big things in the paleo movement is sleeping in a blacked out room. Hmm. You buy blackout curtains, you tape over all your little like lights on your gadgets, you turn everything off. You blot. You put a towel under the over the door in case someone gets up and turns the hallway light on. You black out your room, and I've tried it. It's hard to do. That's something that uh, a lot of people have done for a long time. Who people who work at night and sleep during the day. Yeah, you know, and people who do um, lucid dreaming black their rooms out too. Oh, really? That's something we could talk about. Something that would be a whole podcast, I think. Lucid dreaming. Have you ever lucid dreamed? I have. Yeah. Never on purpose. I mean, there are methods supposedly that can induce it, but. On the few times I have become at least semi-lucid dreaming, I'm always skateboarding. I always skateboard in my dreams when I'm, because I'm because I'm a big fat guy now, and I can't. I used to, but I skateboarded forever, so I've got all those tactile memories. Right? I don't really like dreaming. Is that weird? Really? Yeah. That that 
is scary. It explains no, a whole lot. No, so it's not so much. <laughs> it's not so much that I have nightmares or something, but dreams are usually just really confusing for me. Like they're well, just like random combinations of a whole bunch of things. Right. You know, and it's funny. It's like we put all. Maybe this, you like that. Historically, know. we've always put this big significance on dreams and dream images and dream symbols. And Freud made all sure, this sure. Con- t- stuff about it. But what's interesting is that, from what I understand about modern science, unless it's like a spiritual dream or something, which we're going to give as a possibility, that when you have a dream about that guy that you were in fourth grade with that you haven't thought about in a million years and you're eating asparagus it's because and you're eating a, like or artichokes or something right it's like something you never eat it's it's precisely because those things mean so little to you that your mind is kind of defragging <laughs> and it's it's kind of shut, shutting that dude and artichokes and that one band, it's, it's, so the fact that that band's playing, you're eating. It's like artist, shunting them out of your it's, mind. It's like basically moving them to. It, it's you're you're viewing the process of your brain cleaning up the irrelevant info for, for, to make room. I mean, this is like one of those frontiers of science that I'm I'm utterly fascinated with and totally terrified by at the same time. Right. I mean, just the the concept that it's very possible that in the next fifty years we're going to be able to have access to those mental filing cabinets. Through, through artificial means. Oh, God help us I mean, all. It might not happen. It might not be possible. It might not ever happen. But th- there are people working really hard to try to make that happen. And can you imagine? I mean, if you literally could take a computer and go, like, Google search your own brain and find old memories that well, you've forgotten I, okay, about. Okay, now I heard. That would be terrifying. I heard. An, uh, uh, be like Minority Report. Right, course. no, I heard, I heard a, um, a, a, a thing on NPR where they were talking about a, a new study where... Have you seen the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? No. It's um, Jim Carrey, and he's basically it's f- near future, and you can have memories erased. So he wants to erase his ex-girlfriend because it's just destroying him, right? And and so they have figured out, mostly as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, that they can do this one drug with this one therapy or something and have this person call to mind this memory and they give them this dose with this certain situation and it will knock that memory out. So they can literally erase certain memories and they do they do oh, it for, really? for troubling memories. Like if you if this guy keeps reliving that explosion that took his buddy's life over and over again, they can they can continually lessen that memory into where it's gone. This is like cutting edge stuff. I heard. I heard. It That's on the, way too. I just heard the stu- about the study the other day. So Ugh. now, and I haven't dug into it. Like all this fact, you know, this stuff needs to be fact checked. It's like maybe they're lying. Maybe they can't really do that. Yeah. Well, and Andrew and I can't afford an intern to go fact check all, everything that we not say. Not yet. Yeah. Right. Well, just some of the things that we say. As soon as not we, everything that we say. <laughs> right. I don't want a fact checker. <laughs> 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 then I'd be responsible. You'd, you'd rather dwell in blissful ignorance of reality. Exactly. Okay. This show is about what I, you and I think about stuff, not about what is so. <laughs> this, is like, this is the platonic cave of, of podcasting. Um, so one of the things that you and I have been talking about with regard to sleep is how um, we have this kind of funny standardized notion in the United States that everybody needs eight hours of sleep. That's the, the, the regimen that everybody should have. Mm-hmm. Um, that really is a kind of artificial creation of maybe the late 19th, early 20th century. 
right? This idea uh, that you kind of work for eight hours, you sleep for eight hours, you do other things for eight hours, right. kind of fits into the 24-hour day idea, um, when really maybe that wasn't the case before the industrial right. era. Right. Well, I just, I, what brought this conversation up is we were talking in the bar upstairs and I am. Coffee uh, bar, just so you know. Well, we're, our people are cosmopolitan, so when, <laughs> like we, like you would never go to a bar, you know, it's like, so <laughs> Mark, we, we're usually doing Jaeger shots while we do this podcast. Oh, I guess they don't know that. We can edit that out later. Um, <laughs> No, 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 but we are drinking coffee that tastes like hot dogs. It does not taste like <laughs> hot dogs. Okay, we're ta- we're drinking a Papua New Guinea from the Western Highlands, the Wahi Valley in particular, roasted by Commonwealth Coffee, and they're uh, ama- we're drinking a coffee from Papua New Guinea. We're not drinking a Papua New Guinea. Right. We're and this is and this is roasted by Jason Farrar at um, Commonwealth Coffee, and it's sweet savory. Yeah, and it's very different in the French press than it was in the in the cup that I made. And I think it tastes kind of like hot dogs or bratwurst. It's got a. It does have a savory, meaty, herbaceous kind of quality to it, but it's also got some nice sweetness emerging too. All right. <laughs> you complain about the words that I use. Herbaceous. Herbaceous is a perfectly good descriptor. Forest floor, <laughs> eucalyptus, minty. <laughs> okay, that reminds me of That's the most bright ridiculous. Herbs. This reminds me of the most ridiculous wine description I've ever heard. Yeah. I was reading. I think it was the Wall Street Journal wine column when they still had one mm-hmm. like ten years ago, and was a great column, by the way. It was a and great a column. Good, and a good wine know, club. The, that, that couple still is out there. Like They have a blog and stuff, but it's sad that they don't have a column. In there. We should find that and put it in the notes. Anyway, so <laughs> they were describing a wine tasting that they conducted and how wonderful the descriptions of the participants were and how one of the participants described this wine as opening a yellow umbrella in a warm spring rain. Well, I know where they're getting that. I know what that is. Uh, that's two. Th- Andrew's like, oh yeah, I've had that wine. Well, no, I've had that wine. Well, exactly no, it's, what two, it's two about. things. There's the petroleum <laughs> thing that shows up in Rieslings and in some other wines, and you call that a petroleum. Petro- you call it um, fresh cut garden hose. You call it. It's 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 a certain smell, right? And then the rain thing. So that's plastic umbrella kind of thing. The rain thing is carbolic acid, and it's best described as wet summer sidewalk. So picture like that smell of the humid rain in the Midwest when it hits and now it's, it's, it's stopped rain, it's evaporating. That smell, that's carbolic acid and that shows up in wine. So that description actually makes a pretty, like Band-Aid, you'll hear Band-Aid. That's that same petroleum thing sometimes, hmm. you know. Oh, I've got, I could shock you with even much nastier descriptors, but we won't do that on the podcast. So I just don't want to drink a wine that tastes like Band-Aids, to be honest. Actually, the, some of the wine that Band-Aids shows up is good. But like birthday cake icing, poopy diapers, <laughs> it's, like, oh. it's like, I mean, there's like, there's a, there's all these strange things. Yeah, like a Barnyard is a highly prized uh, smell and flavor in like Pinot Noirs and stuff is barnyard and it's you know sweet hay and kind of like manure and that kind of thing it's like yeah it's a it's a thing and yeah but these are all just an analogies if you smell them side by side they're not the same thing but there is a chemical acid usually or some kind of a chemical but anyway let's get back to sleep so I <laughs> no pun intended as if <laughs> as We're if we never go on digressions hey, no 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 I just realized that I was going about to go on a big wine digression and you know me I as will as opposed to a small wine digression I will go yeah, well when it's wine I always want a big I want a large um, anyway so I listen I, I I listened to this article 
on TV on on the radio, and then I read another article about. And evidently, there's a new book out, and I haven't read the book yet. I gotta What's find the name it. Of the book? It's a book. It's a new book about sleep. Go to the Amazon. Put I, it on sleep. A, I am. I'm gonna um, find it for you. Anyway, so the main thing that we started talking about that has got us on this idea of sleep is they claim in this new sleep book, which we're gonna figure out what it is. Is it this one? Um. No, I don't think so. Um, I probably should have found this before we did a podcast I'll on it. I'll find it, don't worry. All right, Mark's my, my intern today. Um, anyway, it's a brand new book out. And it's like, uh, I had read William H. I've read William H. Demint's The Promise of Sleep. Because I have sleep apnea, so I had to research sleep a lot. I have a sleep disorder. So anyway, the claim is made in this new book and in an article talking about it that until industrialization, until fairly recently from... Victorian literature and stuff, uh, Edwardian literature, all the way back to Homer and biblical references, that people slept every night in two distinct phases of sleep with roughly a two-hour waking period between them. And the first one would start a couple hours after dusk, and then you would be up and... You, it would, you would be up for a couple of hours and then you would go back to sleep and they call it the first sleep and the second sleep. And a lot of times they would call the two hours in between like the watch or something like that. So what, I mean, let's just talk about. So first sleep, second, evidently, is they make reference to it in literature. You'll read it for all the time in, 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 in monastic I, literature. I just stuff. don't understand. Like, what would you, like if you were just a red, regular average person and you were having your two sleeps. What would you do in the interim period if you didn't have electric lights? People would um, people would pray. People would write sometimes. Um, By candlelight? You would sit and have conversation with your co-sleeping partner. Um, married couples would have sex. It was um, there's, there's doctors who recommended that sex during this, after the first sleep was the most vigorous and produced the most healthy offspring or something like that. It was such a common notion. Everyone knew what you were talking about when you said first sleep, second sleep, up until now, industrialization. I mean, I've heard of the, the night being divided into watches. This comes up in the Bible a right. few times, right? Where in both the watches in, of the night. Both yeah. in Hebrew and in Greco-Roman culture, you had this idea of divisions in the night. And normally it was used for military purposes, right? Where you would have you would take turns watching. Right, right. The if first watch, the second soldiers. watch, yeah, right? exactly. But I guess, but think about this, okay? When I and when you go to strict monastic houses, they do vigil. They literally go to bed right. after Compline. They get up. Yes, yeah, so they go, go to bed about what seven thirty maybe. Yeah, and then they get up and do vigil. Then they go back to bed for a while. Right. So maybe that I used to think that was kind of vicious to make them this horrible drag you out of sleep and make you go pray, then let you go back to sleep because right. you couldn't get back to sleep. Turns out maybe that's harkening back to a time when two phases you were up, you were all up anyway. Yeah. People would literally go visit neighbors. It said. That you would literally like walk next door and you'd guy be sitting out front having a pipe and you say, hey, how are you doing? Now I have to go read about this, Andrew. In the middle of the night. Well, because what I'm wondering, because the monastic pattern doesn't match what you're talking about, right? Because the mas- monastic pattern is usually, right, you're sleeping from, say, 7.30 at night to, say, maybe 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then getting up and praying and going back to bed. Right. Right. Not to, like, 11. Right. Well, yeah. So it's Well, like no, it's Compline, Compline is it like... In a traditional monastic house, it'd be like seven thirty, but you wouldn't go to bed right then. You would go then and go back to your room, maybe read for a little while or something, and then go to sleep. Hmm. I mean, the order that I lived with, we complement was at nine, nine fifteen. Yeah, but that's pretty unusual for a monastery, right? But that wasn't a monastery though. It was right. it was semi contemplative. So right. like, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, I was like, 
combo was at nine and we would go to bed at 10, but we got up at 5.30, you know, but we slept all through the night though. We didn't do vigil. No, I don't, it's, it's, it's none of these. It's, not, it's, I'll have to find it. All right, all right. So there's, a, apparently there's a new book out there about sleep. Which I thought I had marked it. Here, you, can look, you can look for it. I got a computer. Oh, okay. So anyway, we're going to try to find this book while we continue talking about sleep. Okay, so, so there's, besides biphasic sleep, though, there's also a polyphasic sleep. Uh, right. So if you are brave enough to go Google this kind of thing on, on the Internet, you're going to find these websites that promote polyphasic sleep, which is an insane idea that would only work with a very few people's lifestyles where you basically divide your sleep into something like um, like maybe 10, 30-minute power naps or something throughout the day. And you take, you take a power nap every, what, 90 minutes or so uh, around the clock. Yeah, the way that I've heard about the, the the main polyphasic sleep that people like in Silicon Valley were hacking, I think Tim Ferriss did this for a while and wrote about it. Different people have done it. Is um, that it was um, you would every four hours you sleep twenty minutes, and the idea and it makes sense. The reason the the the, the, the um, how many the, hours would that add up to total though per day? That would only be like a couple hours. Yeah, there won't be two yeah, hours so of sleep here's, total. So here's the thing. It sounds crazy, but here's the thing. Um, you don't need um, you don't need eight hours sleep. You don't need seven hours. So you don't, what you need is X amount of stage three, stage four sleep. Right. And X amount of deep sleep. Right. Right. Well, if you look at like sleep patterns, I track mine with my iPhone, this little sure. app, right? It's like you're in light sleep and you go down, 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 and then you're in, you know, down in the trough, and then you immediately kind of start coming back up, right? And your body takes a long time to relax and get into these sleep. So what they did when they studied people that were doing polyphasic sleep, and they, they'd hook them up to the machines and the wires and all that, and they would lay down, and inside of a minute or two, they'd be in stage three, stage four sleep, and they would stay there for 20 minutes, and then they'd wake up. So what it was is that if you... Ch- train your body to go you're not going to get 45 minutes to go through a sleep cycle or an hour and a half on the earlier part hmm. of the night you and so it'll just stop taking that leisurely descent and just drop off a cliff and go and i've noticed i do that sometimes sometimes i'll go to sleep and i will drop well we, we even have metaphors for it like i was asleep as soon as my head hit the pillow right yeah i will drop and be in deep sleep for three hours and then i'll wake up and then the rest of my night is kind of light yeah. sometimes so it's evidently it's 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 hacking your body to get into stage three real <laughs> it reminds fast. me of people talking about how the army trains people to sleep with their eyes open really i don't know if that's really true it sounds totally ridiculous to me but to like you know protect from intruders or whatever um but sleep with one eye open that's an old uh <laughs> so have you ever tried polyphasic sleep no or biphasic sleep i've always wanted to and I've never done so. I've never really had the... Um, Should I challenge you like on the podcast to go experiment on yourself over Christmas? You know, it's funny. I sleep? have been thinking about doing the biphasic sleep thing. You know, wait, wait, I want to add something else to this, though, because there was a study done at some point like in the 60s or 70s uh, on sleep where what they did is they took people and put them in a like a sunlight proof kind of cave type thing i mean oh yeah, you know, like, yeah. A, like a, a room underground where there was no possibility they were going to get any sunlight interference they, they took away all um things that would indicate time like right. clocks and exactly. anything that could 
could indicate time, um, and just sort of waited to see what happened with these people's sleep patterns. Um, and after like a week or two of kind of working out the kinks of whatever, they, they would arrive at a kind of consistent uh, amount right. of sleep, which I think was different based on the person, right? It was military or NASA, one of the two. They did it is on the East Coast. The, it's outlined in detail in William H. DeMint's book, The Promise of Sleep. And they, is that the book that we've been talking about the whole time? No, that's oh, the okay. first one. I just found our book, though, by the way. Okay. Um, well, I found evidently this one has been out for a while. But just all of a sudden, people are writing articles about it. It's at at day's close, subtitle, Night in Times Past. Hmm. I guess the paperback just, I don't know. Maybe it's a, I don't know. Maybe they're just starting to talk about this. But all these articles are about this book. Yeah, so, it's almost 10 years old, huh? Huh. Maybe there's another book out there. But um, anyway, so though in the book, um, The Promise of Sleep, DeMint talks about this thing you're talking about. And yeah, basically what happened is that, you know, I, I have my mom and different... Dement as in demented. Yeah. My, my mom and different people will go, oh, man, I wish I could sleep that a long time. I mean, just years. I mean, six hours I wake up. Or like yeah. I wake up at 6.30 no matter what, you know. Turns out when you take light cues and you take, you know, all the time cues away, the average person will sleep 13 to 15 hours a day. What? Uh, for a while. Okay. In this, and so they figured out that there's a concept of sleep debt. Yeah. You're behind. Yeah. And everyone at a certain time, you're sleeping 14, 15 hours a night. And then on some night, you'll sleep like 9.7 hours, some weird number that's not normal number, but is not that big 15. And they know the next night will be your number. Huh. And the next night, you'll sleep seven hours and 45 minutes. And then the next night, you'll sleep seven hours and 45 minutes. You'll sleep like, and basically, you have to chew up all your sleep debt. Hmm. And then you'll get to your, so I, one of my, literally like my bucket list things, if I ever can get over in the pure consulting full time, I want to leave a gap of a month, like between two projects and just go to a cabin someplace or another and just see how it, much I It almost I can seems sleep. like you would need to go to an underground bunker. Like you a cabin, would. yeah, a cabin yeah, yeah. wouldn't be good enough. You'd have to go to some sort of place that, that you wouldn't see the sunlight at all. I would really just want to just sleep. I would really want to try sleeping as much as I could for just like a month and just see whether or not there wasn't like a more heightened level of attention and uh, function available if I ate up all that sleep debt. But they know that it accrues for at least six months because, or I think six months, because one guy was in that study for, I think it was like six months, maybe it was four months, and he never got to the end of it. He was still sleeping 14, 15 hours a night. Wow. So it accrues for a long time. So if you need seven hours of sleep and you've only been getting six for years, for years, I mean, you may have a year of sleep debt. I mean, you may have a, a five months of sleep debt. I mean, it's like, you know, whether or not that's that that's crazy charts exactly, there's no way to know without just like taking someone from birth and measuring them the entire time or something. But, right, which would be ethically problematic from other... But what's interesting, though, is the people that did that polyphasic sleep, they talk about how it became a no-brainer and it was easy and you would lay down for your 20-minute nap for your 20 minutes of sleep every four hours and you would fall right to sleep and you would set a safety alarm for 25 minutes and you would wake up before the alarm automatically. Hmm. And they got a lot of people learn languages, took a second jobs, did all kinds of stuff because they had all this extra time, which um, I don't see myself doing that anytime soon. But I did, well, I just couldn't do it with the way I work right now. Hmm. 
as if I was a, if I was a pure consultant instead of managing and consulting. Yeah, because you would have to take naps during the middle of the day. Yeah, of course. Yeah, every four hours. Yeah, but if you could take a if you could sleep until eight, then go to work you could and sleep then in your car. You could, you know, well, a lot of places like, you know, Google and a lot of these big companies create nap rooms because they figured out that if you give someone a power nap in the afternoon. So, and, and so let's go back. I, and I think it'd be interesting to go back even farther than that. So, so that's... A, it, oh, you want to talk about your theoretical paleo-neolithic man. Yes. I think that that... Ah. I think... All right, go ahead. Say what you're going to say because I think I just I want to contradict you afterwards. Okay, good. I think that this biphasic sleep... Is still unnatural. <sighs> Mark's about to sleep on me right now. <laughs> because it's a product of agriculture. It's a Neolithic thing, right? No, no, no. It's post-Neolithic. That's the whole point. No, no. Neolithic is agriculture. I'm about Paleolithic versus oh, Neolithic. Oh, okay. Right? Right, right, right. So if you go back to like hunter-gatherers before you have... This is all theoretical, all conjecture. No, no, no. It's not because it's we have... conjecture. There's no archaeological ha- evidence. <laughs> we can do ethnographic evidence and we could also just go observe like hunter-gatherers in Papua New Guinea. There's some left yeah, or something. Right. Hey, we're drinking Papua New Guinea That's coffee. That's right. They brought this coffee they, to our table. They very well may have been. Yeah. Um, no, this, is, pro- this is hunter-gatherer coffee. No wonder Well, there are tribal coffees that are just... Wi- right. They grow wild, yeah. right? And they harvest them. But anyway, um, it seems like if you don't have a solid dwelling, like with big heavy walls that a bear couldn't get through or something, and you're living at least in Europe or in Africa where nighttime there's naughty things coming around trying like to eat. Hyenas and They're lions. They're to eat you and, and your children. Or, you elephants. Know. Well, then think about that. If you have a wife and three... elephants wouldn't eat you, but they might trample you. If you have a wife and three kids and you're hunkered up in a cave-like thing on the edge of the wheel, a lean-to or something... The two parents would never sleep at the same time because something will get you. Or right? get your kids. Yeah. Or, yeah, or your kids, right? So you wouldn't just hunker down in the dark because that's when per- carnivores prey. So you keep the fire going and take turns, right? Or maybe you'd stay up most of the night tending the fire and then you'd take turns sleeping during the day, like in phases or something like that. So I don't know. I mean, that that maybe this biphasic sleep is a transition from something even more radical to our eight hours a night kind of a concept. Hmm. Okay, come on, contradict me. You said you're going to contradict me. Well, I just don't think we can know what those people did. Well, we'd have to go look at ethnographic studies. I mean, most of the ethnographic studies about um, hunter-gatherers have been either about A, what they ate, or B, how they buried their dead, or something like that, you know? Right. So, I'd be, I don't know. Maybe maybe there are, I'd have to go study it. Maybe there's a white paper out there about sleeping habits in a... I mean, it does intern. Go go find me a right. white go yep. find me a white paper. There you go, our unpaid intern. Um, no, but you know what? If actually, you'd like to be the unpaid intern. What's funny about it? What, what it makes me think about is how there's so many things we take for granted that are actually really artificial, right? And that change a lot. So I mean, like just the idea of like sitting in chairs around a table to eat. Well, the Romans, they laid down when they ate. Right. You know, they had they had a whole bunch of beds they would put around a table. At, right. I mean, what's weird from our and they perspective. Eat with their, and, and they'd eat with their fingers, yeah, right? Yeah, you would, you would lean on one elbow and then eat with your other hand. And so it's like it's crazy. You know, which brings up that. I mean, I mean, just imagine the kind of like indigest, like, indigestion like, you would get. Like in the movie The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson couldn't help but make one of his yuck, yuck jokes. They all, and Jesus and Mary are talking and he's mm. making a table. That's all tall. And she's like, right. well, who's, well, who's this table for? And he says, well, for a rich man. And they're like, well, how is he going to sit? And he kind of squats down like he's sitting in a chair. 
Like, you know, they sit like this. And she goes, oh, it'll never catch on. Like right. He, right. But that's the, that was that would have been completely strange to them. And you look, you go to like traditional Japanese restaurants or something. You're sitting around this table on the floor, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's a, you know, a, maybe they were they were sitting around. We're originally we're sitting around a fire, you know, Indian style, you know, or sorry, Native American style. Um, <laughs> no, so I mean, uh, want to be PC right. on this podcast? No, it's it's obvious that. Uh, ancient man's sleep habits would probably differ from ours. But exactly how they differed, I think, is a matter of total conjecture. Well, I am. So there are Google searches for hunter-gatherer sleep patterns. Right. And the other thing, I mean, the other thing to say about this is with these, with these studies that we mentioned that are in the Promise of Sleep book by Dement. Yeah. Uh, William H. These, Dr. William H. Dement. These, these people that they studied uh, all ended up doing monophasic sleep, right? Not biphasic. Yeah, they were doing. So what the heck? I mean, how does that how does that make biphasic sleep more natural? It seems like biphasic sleep would actually be an adaptation well, because, to a dangerous situation rather than because a, a natural sleep, situation. Because biphasic sleep would would be arguably one way of reacting to um, the circadian rhythm that light triggers. But if they took away the light triggers, then you're just going to crank out your sleep dead as much as possible and then head into some kind of number right which maybe that is artificial because your 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 melanin your melatonin in your in your is not getting affected by the light on your skin natural sunlight and stuff like that right so and think about it now and I, you, I take i take back what i said earlier when you said have i ever experimented with this i will say that when i try to go to bed when i've been going i i'm by nature an absolute vampire I like to stay up. I get my sec- I get my second wind about 11 p.m. You know, and so I like to stay I better, up. I better get out of here. Yeah, I will bite you in any minute. No, I like to stay up late, 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 and then sleep. If I anytime I've been like between jobs and like I'm waiting for the new project to start, I will stay up till two or three and sleep till ten. I mean, I just I am by nature I love to be up late at night, and so, but so now when I try to go to sleep early. Well, my eyes don't feel good. I'm just going to go to bed early. And I go to bed 7.30, 8 o'clock because it's dark outside. It's wintertime. I'll wake up about 12 or 1, and I'll be up for a couple hours, and then I'll go back to sleep. So I do that now sometimes. If I try to go to bed before 10 o'clock, before 9.30, 9.45, I will wake up for an hour or two in the middle of the night. But See, maybe that's not something to stress over. Maybe you just go to bed earlier, and you go, I'm going to have time to work on my book. I'm going to get some sleep now. I'll wake up, I'll make a cup of herbal tea, I'll work on my book for a couple hours, and I'll go back to bed. You know, maybe I should do that. Maybe I'll do that over the break. It also, make, also makes me think about light, and especially artificial lights, and how, uh, you know, people that live in cities have, are much more prone to nearsightedness. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because of all the ambient light available at night. And hmm. children that sleep with a, um, a, a night light in their room are much more prone to nearsightedness. Um, uh, because it it doesn't allow their eyes to completely rest at night. Oh. Um, so ambient light, I think, is really dangerous for eyesight. Um, but it obviously probably also has other physiological you know, effects. I'm I'm nearsighted and I slept with a light on yeah. until I was in um, my late teens. The other thing to say, there was a, yeah. just a study released this week about how more and more children are having myopia, right, nearsightedness at a very huh. young age, um, because of using iPads and iPhones and all of that stuff, you know. Um, 
so there are, so I think, I don't remember the exact percentage increase, but a large percentage increase of nearsightedness uh, in the past like five or 10 years with the advent of um, all these devices that people are letting their kids use all the time. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, you know, that we're in kind of a strange spot because we haven't totally figured out how it is that artificial light affects us, but it clearly has physiological effects. There's another really fascinating and creepy story. This is maybe from the 1980s um, that has to do with the physiological effects of light where there was this kindergarten teacher or first grade teacher who really liked pink light, kind of random, right? But so she had pink fluorescent lights installed in her classroom. Mm. And, and the kids all went nuts and no, ate the teacher. No, a, she and a bunch of the kids in the class um, got leukemia. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's kind of like, what the heck? So uh, clearly light has some sort of physiological effects. Well, we know that, that natural sunlight is our, cheap, our chief source of vitamin D. Right. And so they, they think that, I mean, I've seen your estimates on what a hunter-gatherer in a moderate climate during the day, skin mostly exposed, being outside most of the time, like what their percentage of vitamin D would be compared to like the recommended daily allowance of like yeah. their, the FDA or whatever. And it's like, it's like off the chart. It like makes the, like, like lifeguards are the ones that are known for getting the most vitamin D. It's like it makes them look like nothing, you know? Yeah. Although again, I think that our ability to forecast those sorts of things is pretty limited. You know, there's, I, I'm intrigued. We may have to do another podcast on this because I just found, I just found another book and another I Discover Magazine article about hunter-gatherer sleep patterns and like the Kong and the Aceh and all this. It's, this is fascinating. I, this is a whole, there's, there's a whole new level there's of interesting. There's a whole world of conjecture about well, no, how no, no, it no, is no, 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 cause, no, cause talking about, No, because they're talking about the Kung and the Ache, Ache and the Efe. These are current hunter-gatherers. You can, you can go look at them. We could get, let's, let's go get some plane tickets. We'll go sleep with the hunter-gatherers, and then we'll know. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, it's not as if tonight you're going to sleep twice, are you? Are you going to go home and do biphasic sleep? I'm, I'm going to, I might. Are you going to do polyphasic sleep tomorrow? I, maybe. I mean, it's the weekend, right? You could try it. It's possible. It. I could. It takes a while to get into it, though. How long does it take to get into it? I don't know, a couple weeks or something like that? I mean, I could probably try it over, I could try it over the, we're all, we're off almost three weeks. Yeah, right? you should, you should do this. And not going home for Christmas. back to the podcast. Do that? I, I'm, I'm tempted to try that. You know, with the sleep apnea thing, though, I have to be at home pretty much to sleep. We have to wait until I, I drop more weight and I get rid of the sleep apnea. So I think you're passing up your big opportunity here, Andrew. Well, I could try biphasic sleep. I could go to bed real early. There you go. So I'm not going to have anything to do because I gave up alcohol for Lent. So I can't, I can't have parties or go out drinking during my break. So I might as well just stay home and sleep instead because I can't have any fun. You know? <laughs> All right. So whether you sleep twice tonight or once or for eight hours or six hours, or whether you have narcolepsy or insomnia or whether you're experimenting with polyphasic sleep, we hope that our podcast did not put you to sleep and that you will return for another episode of the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I am Andrew Whaley.